We've got one more week before we go back to Colossians, which I love that we have been in the book of Colossians up until the holidays and after, because Colossians is just all about Jesus. And that's really what we want to be about. And our, our series in Colossians is called Jesus Plus Nothing. And so next week, we're just back to that. Jesus plus nothing. And we're going to finish out the book of Colossians in the next couple of months. But today, we're, we're in our second week of this two-week kind of New Year's series uh, called Look Back and Look Up. And so this week, we are looking up. And we are receiving God's vision for us for the year. All right, so go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have one. If you don't have one, uh, there's one in front of you or around you in the pew. We'll be in the book of Deuteronomy this morning. And on the Pew Bible, that's page 151. So go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 4 through 9. And once you're there, go ahead and stand up. All right, go ahead and follow along with me as I read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. This is Moses writing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray. God, please help us to look up to you this morning. And I pray that our looking up to you, our, our meditation on your words this morning, would set the tone for our entire year. That you would empower us by your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus to glorify you this whole year. Please remove distractions. Help us to settle in and focus on what you would have to say to us this morning by your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. So last week, we took time to remember God's faithfulness we looked back at 2023, and we learned how to remember God's faithfulness, and we learned from the best. And this is King David. Last week taught us three aspects to remembering the faithfulness of God, and these were first recounting God's past deeds, rehearsing God's character, which is one of steadfast love and faithfulness. And lastly, relying desperately on him. And so now that we've looked back, we've remembered God's faithfulness to us, 
Now we can look up to receive his vision as we move forward into 2024. And according to Moses here in Deuteronomy 6, you cannot reflect on God's faithfulness without also receiving his vision. In our passage today, the two are inseparable. Moses is in the middle of giving his final sermon to the people of Israel as they prepare to enter the promised land without him. And in his final admonition, Moses grounds his vision for the community in who God is and what he's done. And what is Moses' vision for the people of Israel? It's the same for us today. It's total immersion. Loving God with all our heart and soul and might. All of ourselves. Total immersion. This passage has been known for centuries to the Jewish community as the Shema, which is just the first word in verse 4. Hear, Shema. Because their God, Yahweh, which is the personal name of God, that's the name of God given here in verse 4, because their God is singularly worthy of worship, He is also worthy of their singular devotion. Because this God has given himself completely to us, the invitation to total immersion in him follows naturally. And we're familiar with immersion as the best, sometimes the best way to learn. You know, we know that the only proper way to learn a language is with immersion. You know, you try learning a language for five minutes a day on Duolingo, it's not going to work. You got to get in it. For a time. And it turns out it's also a great way to learn how to drive a stick. Back in 2010, actually, my dad drove me as a 20 20 or 21 year old college student to buy my first car off Craigslist. So we drive into the suburbs, go to Linwood, and and buy this $2,000 car off this guy. Turns out it's a stick. But my dad's like, it's okay. You can, you can learn to drive a stick. It's no problem. And so we, we bought the car, signed over the deed, and I drove home. And my dad followed me in his truck. I didn't die, but the car died many, many times. But by the end of that, what should have been 20-minute commute but turned into an hour, I knew how to drive a stick. Total immersion is also the best way to get to know the true value of the Christian God. And in this beautiful passage, the Shema, Moses gives us three steps. First, we'll see that immersing yourself totally in God requires that you understand what you're diving into. God isn't asking you to take the leap without giving you a good reason who he is. 
Second, we'll see that immersing yourself today, or sorry, totally in God is holistic. It involves every aspect of who you are. And third, we'll see that immersing yourself totally in God requires steady rhythms of remembrance. Okay, so first, total immersion in God is reasonable. Look at verse 4 again. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so by this point, Moses has made his point pretty clear already, but he will continue to hammer his point home throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 4 is interesting, and it's actually somewhat confusing. There are actually only four Hebrew words after the opening line of Hear, O Israel. There's only four words. Literally, it says, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. There's no to be verb. It's just those four words. And so there's been much debate over what exactly Moses is saying here. You might have a footnote in your Bible like I do, which says something like this. When it says, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, it might also say, or, the Lord our God is one Lord. Or, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You get the picture. <laughs> Scholars are like, what does this mean? And it seems that the best way to read this sentence is to understand two things about this God, Yahweh, that Moses is referring to. Firstly, as far as Yahweh compares to the gods of the nations surrounding the people of Israel, he is the only one worthy of worship. Second, as far as Israel is concerned and Israel's worship is concerned, Yahweh is the only one worthy of their singular worship. And so Yahweh is both the only God around who is worthy of worship, and he is the only God for Israel. He's both one of a kind and the only one for them. That's what Moses is trying to say. And so by this point in his sermon, Moses doesn't extrapolate on exactly why Yahweh is the only God for them, but that's because he already did. And he will do so again and again throughout the book of Deuteronomy. So I want to briefly look back two chapters to see how Moses introduces Yahweh to the nation of Israel. Turn back to chapter 4 and look at verse 32. And we'll read through through uh, verse 39. So Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 32, says, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? 
Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for Himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore. And then it goes on. And so here in chapter 4, we see the preamble to our passage today. What other God has done things like this? And this is ancient Israel, who only had a certain understanding of who Yahweh was. Here we are, if I can count, 3,500 years Past that, here we are, this side of redemption history, we have many more data points than they had. We now see Yahweh through the three persons and works of the Trinity. The Father's sovereign love, the Son's incarnational rescue, the Holy Spirit's comfort and help. And so before we seek to reaffirm our total commitment to this God, we need only ask similar questions. What other God has done things like our God? What other God has laid aside His divine privileges for our sake? What other God chose to enter into human suffering in order to deliver us from it? What other God took on a body that was broken so that he could offer us eternal life. What other God invites us into the work he is doing in this world in collaboration with him? What other God loves you dearly as a beloved child? There is no other God like this one. And once you've grappled with this reality, going all in, becomes the most rational and natural thing you could ever do. And so total immersion in God is reasonable based on who he is. Secondly, it's holistic. Look at verse 5. It says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Verse 4 and 5 in Hebrew is connected with an and, which makes sense. It says in the Hebrew, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall. 
because of and only because of the character and actions of this God, we can and should enter completely in. And the word love here is wonderful. It includes complete and utter devotion and obedience, but it's so much more than that. When I married Anna, I committed to do all the things that a husband should do when I should do it. Care when she's sick, comfort when she's down, financial, physical, emotional, relational protection. But there is an umbrella term that encapsulates all of those things. Love. Love is tangible, practical. It isn't ethereal or theoretical. If you were to follow me around all day and count all of the practical ways that I love my wife, you might end up with a nice list, I hope, hopefully. But those aren't defining of our relationship. The relationship supersedes any task or duty associated with it. There is always more depth. That's because it is based on love. And this side of the New Testament, we know that we love because he first loved us. Any love that we have for God is a response to the love that he's already shown us. And you know what's cool is Moses knew that as well. He invites this ancient Israelite people to give all of themselves to this God who powerfully pulled them out of Egypt. Who pulled out all the stops to deliver them from bondage. If you look at verse 20 and 21, right there in verse 6, it says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. That's basically the Old Testament gospel. We were slaves in Egypt, And God brought us out with a mighty hand. Just change a few words. I was a sinner in need of a Savior. God brought me out with a mighty hand through his Son. And so we are invited to love this God with all our heart and soul and strength or might. And in the New Testament, you guys probably remember, Jesus pronounces this specific command. The Shema in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the first and greatest command in the scriptures. And in a couple places, he adds all your mind. That's because the Hebrew word here used for heart would have included the mind. It's not just the seat of your emotions, but also your will and your intellect. Soul is your very being your personality, your, per- your personhood. Strength or might is everything that you touch, your ripple effect. We can think of these three as concentric circles starting at the very core of who we are and moving out. But it starts within, in every individual heart. The heart here, like I said, is the operating center of your life. The mind, 
the will, your emotions, the whole internal you. Even those of us who have a hard time accessing the deepest parts of ourselves, God wants to access those parts. And he wants to redeem those parts. He wants to know the deepest parts of you, the areas that even you don't know yet. The paradox here is that in giving your total self over to this God, in devoting your whole life to Him, He helps guide you to be the self that perfectly fits who you were created to be. But it doesn't stop there. It moves out from there. From the heart, we move out to the soul. If your heart is the whole internal you, the soul is the whole external you. It's the you that spills out. It's your personality, your actions, your words. Once God has a hold of the internal you, the external you will show it as well. Didn't Jesus say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks? And so finally, we arrive at our, our might, our strength. Literally, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your very muchness. <laughs> if heart and soul describes the whole self, then what is this last qualifier about? It's basically an exclamation point on all of it. I, if Heart and soul doesn't cover it. Moses throws this in to cover his bases. And one commentator paraphrases it like this. Love the Lord your God with total commitment, heart, with your total self, soul, to total excess. We all know that each person has a ripple effect on things and people around them. This is your might. This is your strength. This includes your relationships, your influence, your vocation, dare I say it, your politics. God wants a relationship with your whole self. And he even wants everything that self touches. This is the holistic nature of total immersion in God. There are no distinctions in the life of faith between what is secular and what is sacred. Everything, every relationship, every decision, every purchase, every season is for him. Heart, soul, and might. All right, so total immersion is reasonable, it is holistic, and lastly, it is sustainable. Look at verses 6 through 9 again. It says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this leads us to number three. How do we sustain this level of commitment. It's so broad, so sweeping, so intense. And we're all about sustainability these days, right? And that's good. 
If you start something good, but in two days or two weeks or two years, you run out of energy or motivation or resources, how helpful is that? How do you sustain this level of total immersion in God as an individual and as a church community? I love that Moses doesn't say here, try harder. He says, remember harder. Don't forget that verses 4 and 5 are linked. We can't go all in with a God that we don't know. The character, the actions, and especially the words of God are integral to our sustaining a commitment to him. And so Moses recommends a robust practice of individual, corporate, and generational remembrance. This is morning and evening. This is both personal and community-wide. And the Jews of Jesus' day even took verses 8 and 9 literally. They had little boxes that they would put this scripture in and hang it from their bodies. Put it in a little chamber in their doorpost. And, the, and, his, and Jesus' critique of them wasn't necessarily those practices. It was that they carried around these words without internalizing them. The external show was there, but the inside was rebellious towards God. And so what is Moses' prescription of how to sustain total immersion with God? It's with individual and corporate rhythms of remembrance. But once again, it starts with the individual and it starts deep within. He says these words shall be on your heart. There in verse 6. Now this definitely reflects memorization. The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But it also points us to fast forward to a promise God makes through Jeremiah that would supersede the Mosaic covenant. Jeremiah says, and this is God speaking, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more and so thankfully once again we are on the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh side of history. But that doesn't remove the need for us to lean into personal rhythms of remembrance. To lean into memorization, repetition, personal devotion, personal practices and rhythms to embrace this holistic relationship of love and grace. If we are going to be salt, in a tasteless world, or light in a dark city. We need to be constantly saturating ourselves with who God is, what He's done, how He feels about you, 
how he feels about the world, how he is committed to you. We need to be in his word. So we can ask ourselves, what areas of our life can we take a step further toward God and his word? Personal rhythms, family rhythms, vocational rhythms. But these aren't just individual for our private thought life and the comfort of our bedrooms. We see Moses recommend speaking of God's word and actions as we walk by the way on our commute, on the doorposts of our houses and on our gates, in our house, in our home, as well as in the workplace. Gates in ancient times, that's basically the market square, the city center, city hall is the gate. Finding ways to commune with God in all areas of your life. Remember, there is no distinction between sacred and secular. God wants intimacy with the whole you. The churchy you, the job you, the coworker you, the commuter you, the son you, the daughter you, the friend you, the spouse you, all of you. We partner together in this. We're not just all one-off disciples of Jesus going out. We are in this together. How can we as a community go further up and further in? What rhythms can we continue or start to collaborate in this total immersion experience together? How can we partner with Christians across this neighborhood, across this city, across the country, across the globe? How can the Christians of Seattle bless and serve Seattle. If you're sitting here hearing me talk about total immersion as our vision for this year, and it just makes you feel tired, I get it. But remember, Moses' primary application is not to do more, do more, do more, try harder, do better. It's to remember more, to behold more. If you're exhausted, perhaps it's because your rhythms are rhythms of doing, not remembering. It's no wonder that Christians burn themselves out and at the end of the day or the week or the year question if God even loves them. That's a problem. In our rhythms, there needs to be a balance between doing and being. I think one of the reasons God's invitation to us is one of total immersion is because we are immersive creatures. That's what we do. When we discover something we're into, we are into it. That's how we're designed. And so the reality is that if we aren't totally immersed in God, we will be immersed in something else. And often we end up worshiping those things. I think this is what the author of Psalm 1 was getting at when he opens the psalm with, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. We are all in creatures. It's just a matter of what we are all in on. 
Can we read these words as an invitation to us? Perhaps it could say, Hear, O Seattleites. Hear, O Capitol Hillites. Hear, O American Christians. Hear, O modern Westerner Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the only God out there who alone is worthy of worship who alone among all other gods, all other ideologies, all other higher powers is worthy of your singular devotion, worship, and love. In the Son, Jesus Christ, He gave you all of Himself so you can and should give Him all of yourself. Just watch what He'll do in your life this year. Let's pray. God, we are up and down creatures too. Even in the things that we commit our lives to, we we falter, we stumble, we're up and down. You know that though. As Psalm 103 says, you understand and remember our frame. You know that we are dust. And yet the The love of God transforms us, takes away our sin as far as the east is from the west. Even when we are numb to our own feelings, even when we know the truth and yet are just having a hard time acting on it, you still love us. You're still there. You welcome our prayers, even if they're prayers of complaint, even if they're prayers of, of frustration, even if in the first seven days of the year we've already burnt ourselves out of our, our striving and our, our attempts at change. That's why you're the best God out there. Because you're the God of grace. For by grace... We have been saved. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. What other God has done that? Lord, so wherever we are at this morning, whether we're gung-ho and all about it, chomping at the bit, or we're struggling, we're, we're heavy, heavy-hearted, carrying heavy things, not even sure if we want to commit our lives to you. We thank you that no matter where we find ourselves this morning, your love is beyond our imagination. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I pray for each person here this morning. as they weigh the the future of this year, the the plans, the the transitions, the the situations they find themselves in, I, I pray that you would continue to show them how valuable a relationship with you is. 
And that the more they push into you, the more they throw themselves out there on you, the more they walk out on the limb that is you, paradoxically, the more rest they will experience. The more joy, the more peace, the more hope, the more life. Fill them with your Holy Spirit, God. Thank you that we are on this side of redemption, that we do have the helper, the counselor, the advocate, and the Holy Spirit to walk with us, to change us, to convict us, to invite us. We praise your name. I pray for those who are on the fence with you. I pray that you would continue the process of wooing them to yourself through your deep and tender kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.